chapter 3. Uh, by the way, that was Mike Rodriguez on the bass guitar over there. Good, man. Good, Mike. Way to work in there. Um, hope you're going to be here June 6th to see Meet Sang. He's uh, been Mike and Brenda's friend for years over in California. And I met him probably five years ago, but uh, we got to know him really good this past summer. And I'm sure that Ryan and uh, Josh and Stephen and what others would say that Sang is the man, right? So I hope, hope you're here to meet him. Uh, our church holds uh, to the five, uh, the basic philosophy of our church ministry, we hold the five basic pillars in our ministry. And Mike talked about this early on in our church when we started four years ago or so. Talked about it a couple times. Uh, one pillar we hold to is a high view of God. We believe it's God, God is creator, uh, majestic, holy, and high and to be reverenced. We hold to a high view of scripture as well. Uh, we hold to an accurate understanding of man, that is man is a sinner, totally depraved, dead in his trespasses and sins until God uh, causes him to have new life in Christ. Uh, we believe in the supremacy of Christ, that Christ should be supreme, he's the head of the church, and that we should uh, be subordinate to Christ. And we believe that a church, our church, should be patterned after the New Testament. And that's the only way we can glorify God. Be like the New Testament, not some model that somebody came up with yesterday or we'll come up with next week and write a book about, and then we're supposed to change and become like that. Our church is to be patterned after the New Testament. Tonight I want to look at the second pillar that we've adopted as philosophy for our church, and that is a high view of, of Scripture. Um, <clears throat> that's what our philosophy of ministry says. That doesn't mean that's what you think, though. I think most everybody here probably does think that. But you have to adopt that as your own. Otherwise, you'll go around saying, well, our church believes this. Well, what about you? What do you believe about Scripture? And if, I think if I ask you two questions, it would clarify a little bit, especially the second question. Number one, what is your view of Scripture? Number two, what are you personally right now in your life doing with the Scripture? What are you doing on a daily basis with the Scripture? That might clarify where you stand on the Scripture. Uh, if you'll turn to 2 Timothy 3, let's look at the context first before we get into the verses we're going to look at, which is verses 14 to 17 in particular. Uh, in chapter 3, Paul is talking about the kinds of behavior people are going to have in the last days. Now, the last days began with the New Testament era. It's been going on ever since, technically. And people are going to be, people are behaving a certain way in these days, and they're behaving like this. Uh, Paul says in verse 1, realize this, in the last days difficult times will come. What are people going to be like? They're going to be like this, verse 2. Men are going to be lovers of self, lovers of money. They're going to be boastful, arrogant, revilers, disobedient to parents, ungrateful, unholy, unloving, irreconcilable, malicious gossips, without self-control, brutal, haters of good, treacherous, reckless, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. Sounds like Hillsborough County last week alone. Uh, verses 6 to 9 talk about how depraved and devious and, and uh, what kind of fools false teachers are. It says in verse 6, For among them are those who enter into households, these false teachers, who are living a lifestyle less than desirable. They captivate weak women weighed down with sins, led on by various impulses. Verse 7 
They're always learning and never able to come to the knowledge of the truth. Just as Janus and Jambres opposed Moses, so these men, these false teachers, also opposed the truth, men of depraved mind, rejected in regard to the faith. Uh, verse 9, they will not make further progress, progress, for their folly will be obvious to all, just as Janus and Jambres' folly was also. But notice that Paul, Timothy rather, was loyal to Paul. Look at verses 10 to 12. Paul says to Timothy, Now you followed my teaching, Timothy. Conduct, purpose, you followed my faith, my patience, my love, my perseverance. Timothy, you followed my persecutions and sufferings, such as happened to me at Antioch, at Iconium, and at Lystra. What persecutions I endured, and out of them all the Lord rescued me. Indeed, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. So this is where, we are, where we're at now. And, and then we come into verses 14 and 15. And here, and we're going to walk through the passage tonight, verses 14 to 17. In verses 14 to 15, we see that Timothy is instructed to live in the scriptures. He's instructed to live in the scriptures. Verse 14, uh, verse 13, rather, evil men and impostors will proceed from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. You, however, continue in the things you have learned and become convinced of, knowing from whom you have learned them, and that from childhood you have known the sacred writings which are able to give you the wisdom that leads to salvation through faith which is in Christ Jesus. He says this word, this phrase twice in this, in this passage. Verse 10, it says, now you. Verse 14, you, however. Those are the same two uh, words, uh, identical words in Greek in both passages. He's contrasting to the false teachers. He says in verse 13, Timothy, evil men are going to get worse and worse. You, however, in contrast to them, are to behave differently or to live differently, to act differently, he says. And he emphasizes that to Timothy. I want you to be different, Timothy, than those other guys are. They're evil. You're not that way, Timothy. I want you to be different. I want to give instructions to you on how to live. And he says in verse 14, Timothy, you, however, are to continue in the things you have learned and become convinced of. Continue. Continue is the main verb in this section. It's the thrust of the whole passage here, verses 14 to 17. It's a very important word. He says, I want you to continue in the things you've learned, Timothy. Continue is a commitment to a long-term way of doing something. It is a command to keep on doing an action as your general habit of life or lifestyle. It's something you should do every day for the rest of your, of your life. This is a habit you should form and keep doing every day for the rest of your life. You're to continue in something. Timothy had been taught something. And this is what he was to continue in. It says here, the, the things that you have learned and become convinced of. What did Timothy learn? Verse 15 tells us, from childhood you have known the sacred writings. The sacred writings are the holy scriptures. This is what you have learned, Timothy. This is what you have known. And Paul says to Timothy, Timothy, you have learned the scriptures from a child, and now I want you to continue in the scriptures. I want you to persevere in the scriptures. I, w I want you to persist in the study of the scriptures. I want you to remain obedient to the scriptures all the days of your life. This is what you've always been taught, Timothy. This is the way you've been living. Don't stop now. Continue on and keep going on with this path that you've, that you've followed all this time now. Jesus said in John 8, 32, If you continue in my word, what? What did he say? For those of you who didn't memorize that verse, he said... If you continue my word, then you are my, my disciples indeed. You're really my disciples if you, if you continue in my word. 
And we must do the same. We can't have the attitude that we've already arrived. Oh, I've already heard that passage preached, Mark. I've had people come up to me and say, I already know that. Uh, I understand that already. Been there and done that. So now you advance beyond the Bible. Is that what you're saying? Some people think that in Sunday school they learn something, therefore they don't have to go over it again. No, we've got to continue on in the Word of God. Not something in addition to the Word of God, but in the Word of God itself we've got to continue. A lot of people here, including myself, read books about the Bible. But we need to make sure we don't neglect one thing, the Bible itself. We've got to major on that. It's got to be our daily practice. And he says here to Timothy, I want you to continue to live in the scriptures, live in the word of God. He goes on to say, Timothy, this is something you've become convinced of in verse 14. You have a conviction about this. You've come to have hold a firm belief in the scriptures. You really believe the scriptures. You trust in them. You base your whole life upon this. Dave and I talked about this the other day. He said, man, we, our whole life is involved in the scriptures. And that's true, it is. This is what Timothy had come to. He, it says, or Timothy had come to a firm and a fixed belief in the scriptures. This is a bedrock, non-negotiable for us, the scriptures. Our church says we hold to a high view of scriptures. Do you hold to a high view of scriptures in your own life? This is something we can't negotiate. We have to hold this. This is the bottom line right here, a high view of scriptures. There's a disturbing uh, tendency going on among biblical scholarship. I'm talking about Bible scholars, so-called. There's something going on among them that really disturbs me greatly. You know what's happening to some of these guys? They're caving in to the evolutionist, and they're saying, all right, the scientific, so-called scientific community, by the way, watch that, because just because someone is a scientist doesn't mean he's scientific. He could, be a, he could be, have a false truth he presents or a false presupposition he presents. It's not even accurate at all. And there's a tendency among so-called certain Bible scholars to what they're doing now is they're, they're getting rid of Genesis 1 and saying, oh, I can't believe in a literal six-day creation. It's not very scientific. And after all, the evolutionists have, have shown that they, you know, what they say is true and we, we really got to at least compromise with them and nothing else. Just recently, we had another example of this, a guy by the name of Bruce Waltke, who's been teaching, uh, who's been a Bible scholar for about 100 years, I think. He caved in, and he said in public, he said this, if the data is overwhelmingly in favor of evolution, to, de- to deny that reality will make us a cult. He said the evidence for Evolution is overwhelming. What, what are you talking about? What evidence for evolution? Even evolutionists among themselves disagree with a lot of things. There's no evidence for evolution, first of all. So why are you saying this? Well, the seminary he was with, Reformed Theological Seminary Orlando, they let him go. But not to worry, Knox Seminary and Fort Lauderdale picked him up. He's on their staff now. Do you think that John Knox, whom the seminary was named after, would believe in evolution? I don't think so, or would compromise and say, well, it was God and evolution together that kind of, God doesn't need evolution to help him out, okay? I don't think John Knox would hold to the theory of evolution to this day. And here's the thing, as someone once said, if you can't believe in the first page of the Bible, Genesis 1, what are you going to do with the rest of the scriptures? That really concerns me. It's a great concern. That's not a light thing right there. 
We need to be convinced that the things in the scriptures are true. I don't care if people call me an ignoramus. I'd rather be ignorant and believe Genesis 1 than a Bible scholar so-called and not believe it. Don't get me wrong. There are very good men who are great Bible scholars, very good men who believe in Genesis 1. And then there are some very bad men who are also Bible scholars. You have to be careful with that. We've got to have convictions concerning the Word of God. You know that men were burned at the stake in history because of their stance on the Word of God? John Huss, I think in the 1500s, was burned at the stake for preaching the truth. William Tyndall, who came up with the great translation back, I think, 1400-something, of, of the English, uh, English Bible, died, and they later on dug his bones up or his remains and burned them because they said he was a heretic. These men died because they had convictions. We have to have convictions, yes, that we're willing to die for even. It's not easy to say that because when you're faced with that, it's a lot different than saying it right now here in, in our air-conditioned church. <laughs> and so we need to be convinced of the truth of the word of God. As, and Paul's telling Timothy here, this is serious business. I know, Timothy, you've become convinced of the truth of the word of God. You're, you have convictions that this is the word of God that you hold a high view of scripture. And then he says, Timothy, where'd you get this knowledge? Well, in verse 14, he says, knowing from whom you have learned them. Timothy knew well from the people whom he had learned the scriptures. He knew well. Who were they that taught Timothy the scriptures? Well, look at 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 5. <clears throat> 2 Timothy 1, 5, it says here, uh, Paul said to Timothy, for I am mindful of the sincere, the genuine, non-hypocritical faith within you, Timothy, which first dwelt in who? Your grandmother, Lois, and your mother, Eunice, and I'm sure that it's in you as well. doesn't say anything about his father here. If you were to read Acts 16.1, I'm not going to turn there. Acts 16.1, if you want to look at it later or now. It says that Timothy's mother was a Jew, his father, but it says his father was a Greek, and it says his mother was a believer, and it doesn't say anything about his father being a believer. And Paul doesn't point to anything in 2 Timothy 1.5 about Timothy's father at all. We assume that Timothy's father was not a believer as a result of that. So, who taught Timothy the word of God? Two women, his grandmother and his mother. As Timothy grew up, these two women exerted tremendous influence on his life in regard to the scriptures. They taught him the scriptures. <clears throat> and so that's this his original teaching. And I wanted to say, since there are many, there's going to be more and more children in our church now. I know all of you know this. But this is all, I told someone this morning, what is preaching but a reminder of what the word of God says week after week, right? We need to be reminded constantly. All of us do. I do. That's for sure. I need to be reminded like every second. So... I want to say, parents, we have a tremendous responsibility to teach our children the Word of God. I, I'm laying it on you now. All of us have that responsibility. And grandparents. If there's any grandparents in this room tonight, we also have... Thanks, Mike. You're not playing bass guitar anymore. <laughs> we also have a responsibility to teach our grandchildren the Word of God, right? I mean, that's, this is our responsibility. We need to take it seriously. And that means we have to live in a certain way. That way would be in line with what the Word of God teaches. There's, that's, what, that's what we're to do. We're commanded to do that. This is very important, that parents teach their children the Word of God and let them before them. 
And I know we have the dedication services. I, I don't know about you, but a lot of the dedication services I've seen in churches, the parents come up. They ded- and I'm not, not saying this is wrong. It's not a scriptural practice necessarily. It doesn't command this. But, you know, they, they bring your children up, and we want to raise our children right, and they're, you know, they're a little baby, and we give them a blue New Testament or a pink New Testament, right? No doubt from Gideon's. And we give them this. And then how many times have I seen this? The parents never come back to church again ever, never see them again. What happened to those parents that dedicated their child? They wanted to raise them for the Lord, right, in the fear and admonition of the Lord. Never see them again. Don't be like that. There's, there's people in here that have children right now. There are those who are going to have children soon, and you, you guys also. And this is very important that we, you, get this, you get this in your head. We've got to teach our children the word of God. Deuteronomy 6. Turn to Deuteronomy 6. I'm just going to read this, but go ahead and turn there. Verse 6 and 7. And I know some of you are saying, well, I already know all this. Once again, uh, we'll be reminded if nothing else. Deuteronomy 6, verse 6. God says about the family here, he says, These words which I am commanding you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your sons and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way, when you lie down, and when you rise up. I know none of us have done this or do this perfectly. I realize that. But this is what the standard is. The standard is to teach your children the word of God. This is very important. This is the bottom line. And so Timothy's mother and grandmother taught him the scriptures from birth. Who else taught Timothy? How about the Apostle Paul? Look at 2 Timothy chapter 3 again, verse 10. <clears throat> Paul says here, we already read it. Paul says to Timothy in verse 10, Now you, Timothy, you already, you've been following my teaching and conduct and purpose. Paul taught Timothy by, by uh, word of mouth and also by example. Uh, he, Paul poured his life into Timothy. And Timothy saw the Apostle Paul and he said, Wow, this guy is serious about the scriptures. And he was. And isn't that the job of the church? To make disciples of people? How are we doing here? Are we seeking to make disciples of anybody? Whether you're married or not? Are you parents discipling your own children and teaching them the scriptures? Are you modeling it for them? I'm talking to myself too. I'm not trying to put myself above anybody here. God knows. Uh, Can you point to anybody, anybody in this room, can you point to anybody that you've taught the scriptures to ever in your life? This is the job of the church. Disciple people in the scriptures. So Timothy knew well the character of those people who had taught him. He saw the Apostle Paul. What an example. He saw his grandmother and his mother. Unhypocritical people, as it says in the text. Very sincere and genuine in their belief. He saw them. He knew from personal experience that they were exemplary. Parents, I know this is heavy on you probably, but what kind of example are you setting for your children? What kind of example are we grandparents setting for our grandchildren. We're to be the teacher that God wants us to be in word and example. And then look at verse 15. <clears throat> he says, Timothy, from, a child, from childhood, you have known the sacred writings, which are able to give you the wisdom that leads to salvation. The word childhood here is talking about, it can be talking about even an unborn child or an infant or a very small child. At any rate, you're talking about someone who's just been born, or very small, very young. And he says, 
even from that, as an, as an infant, Timothy, as a very young age, you were your, your grandmother and mother had the sense to teach you the word of God. They knew it. They knew they should do that, and they did it. And I've, I've used this illustration before, and Mike's going to remember this, but this is, I love this illustration. The King James translators had some, they were brilliant men. Let me, let me tell you about it. These guys were brilliant, okay, first of all. Not to say that translators today aren't. They are. There's many great translators today. But these guys were brilliant. And there was a guy named John Boys. Some spell it B-O-Y-S, some B-O-I-S. Uh, was one of the translators. Do you know that by the time, time John Boys was five years old, his dad had taught him Hebrew? And do you know that by the time he was five years old, John Boys, the five-year-old, had read through the entire Hebrew Old Testament himself? Yeah. At the age of six, he was writing Hebrew in a clear and elegant style, which is not easy to do. Uh, the messy style is what I'd prefer on that. But, but back then, they had a different mindset, totally different, highly disciplined individuals. This is back in the uh, 1500s, 1600s, totally different mindset back then. And I'm not saying our children in the church need to be Greek and Hebrew scholars, although if they were, it would help me out. But I'm not saying they have to be that. I'm just saying that they need to be taught the word of God. And don't, ask, don't underestimate your children. Well, they can't learn that. Who says? Why don't, why don't you try teaching that? At least the scriptures as best you can. And so Timothy, from a very young child, was learning the scriptures. Why do you think when he got older in Acts 16, Paul says, I want Timothy to go with me? Why'd that happen? By chance? It happened because of two women. That taught him the scriptures. It goes on to say in verse 15 that Timothy had known the sacred writings. The Bible is called the sacred writings here, or the holy scriptures, same phrase. By the way, it's the only time this phrase is used in the New Testament. And the phrase is used to designate the Old Testament. When this was written, there was not a New Testament per se. It was being written, but it wasn't in, in, in you know, it was just being written then. He's got primary reference to the Old Testament at this point. And the word sacred is used to associate the scriptures with God himself. And this book is like any other, is like unlike any other book. There's no book like, this is the book of God. This is the book that came from God. Its origin is in God. There are other holy books that people call holy books at least, at least like the Koran. People call that a holy book. It didn't come from God. People call the Vedas, the Buddhist uh, books, the holy books. It didn't come from God. People call the Book of Mormon uh, a holy book of sorts. That didn't come from God either. Uh, there's only one book that came from God, and that's the Holy Scripture. And that's what it says here. And what can these scriptures do for us? They can give us, it says in verse 15, the wisdom that leads to salvation through faith which is in Christ Jesus. And as we said, <clears throat> Paul primarily, by the way, Paul, the Bible Paul preached out of was what? It's the Old Testament. When Paul preached in the New Testament, what did he have? He had the Old Testament he was preaching from. The Old Testament teaches the way of salvation. Yes, it does. It teaches the way of salvation. And the Old Testament teaches one way of salvation, and the New Testament teaches the same way of salvation. The Old Testament is not teaching something different than the New Testament. They're all the same. It's the same method of salvation. It's through Christ Jesus, through faith in Christ Jesus, it says right here. So the question comes up, well, what did Old Testament believers know about Christ? 
I don't know that we really know that information. Clearly, it's a debate among people, and I'm not going to go on that, that route anyway. But I know one thing. The scripture says here, salvation is through faith, which is in Christ Jesus. Old and New Testaments, that's the way it is. There's only one way to God, and that's through Christ. It's always been that way. <clears throat> you look in the Old Testament, and you see the Old Testament sacrifices pointing to Christ, right? As Hebrews talks about. You look in the Old Testament in Exodus 12, and you come across the Passover. The children of Israel were going to go leave Egypt, and they had to sacrifice the lamb and put the blood on the doorpost and the lintel. And it says in 1 Corinthians 5, even Christ our Passover is sacrificed for us. You look at passages like Psalm 22, where the words come out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And then Christ quotes those words. You look at passages like Isaiah 53, you see Christ suffering on the cross. Look at Isaiah 53 with me. I know you're familiar with this. We'll just look at verses 4 to 6 quickly. Isaiah 53, verse 4, speaking of the Messiah, Surely our griefs he himself bore, our sorrows he carried, yet we ourselves esteemed him stricken, smitten of God and afflicted, but he was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening for our well-being fell upon him. And by his scourging, his stripes, we are healed. All of us like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. But the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. And you see these passages in the Old Testament. And they teach salvation through Christ. And the fundamental difference between the word of God and what these other religions teach is salvation is through faith in Christ and not by works. That's fundamentally the difference. Romans chapter 4, verses 1 to 8, it talks about the fact that David was saved by faith. Uh, uh, Abraham was, was saved by his belief in, in, in Christ, his belief in God. And it talks about faith there. And so <clears throat> Timothy here is learned from the scriptures that he could have salvation in Christ. And Paul says, Timothy, I want you to, to live in the scriptures that you've been taught. Continue to live. And boys, you thought he'd give him some new information here, right? Nothing new here. Just do what you're doing, Timothy. Keep on the same path. The scriptures are always the answer. You say, but I got all kinds of problems and issues going on. Guess what? So do I, and guess what? The scriptures are still the answer. I tend to worry about certain things. I find myself being paranoid about everything anymore. And I think to myself, Philippians 4 says, be don't be anxious for anything. But pray about everything, and God will allow his peace to guard your heart, it says. Yeah. This is what I'm saying. The scripture has the answer if we'll avail ourselves of it. So do, you live, do you live in the scriptures? Or is it hit or miss with you? Well, I, you know, I read the Bible today, but I didn't do it for the last week. And I, I know all of us get busy, but nevertheless, our, we've got to make a conviction in our life that the scriptures are foundationally important to us. Timothy is, is instructed to live in the scriptures. And then secondly here, Timothy is, is instructed in the nature of the scriptures in verses 16 to 17. He's instructed in the nature of the scriptures. What are the scriptures all about anyway? Well, first of all, we find the scriptures are inspired in verse 16. It says all scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching or doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man, so that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. The scriptures are inspired. We don't say that enough, I think. I'm not, I don't say it enough. Scriptures are inspired by God. You know what it says in our statement of faith? I read this the other day, and I wrote it down again. 
It says this, our statement of faith. <clears throat> we believe that the 66 books of the Bible constitute the word of God, his only written special revelation to man, which he has faithfully preserved throughout time. The scriptures are divinely inspired and God-breathed in origin, which means they must be in, without error in their original writings and infallible. Such inspiration must also be verbal. Every word is inspired. It must be plenary. All parts are equally inspired because God is its source. And so we hold to a strong, high view of Scripture here. We don't take this business of we don't know what the Scriptures really, where they came from. No, we don't hold, we, don't, we have a view that we believe they came from God. If you look at that statement, we talk about the 66 books of the Bible being the infallible Word of God, not the, not the 14 additional books the Catholics add to their Bible, the Apocrypha. Not another testament of Jesus, the Mormons that Josh is well acquainted with, have in their Bible. No, we, it's just the Word of God. Anything besides that is not the Word of God, and this is his special written revelation to us. <clears throat> You'll notice in that statement, it talks about the fact that the Word of God is faithfully preserved in history. By the way, the pre preservation of the Word of God is nothing less than miraculous throughout the centuries. Absolutely phenomenal that it's been preserved throughout the centuries. For centuries, the Hebrew Old Testament has been carefully guarded and kept and every letter watched over, every letter watched over and counted by scribes. There are over 5,000 Greek manuscripts in part or in whole that have been preserved throughout the centuries. Nothing else can come close to this in ancient literature. Nothing can come close to it at all. And yet you hear nothing about this at all. You hear about evolution and all this other stuff, but not about the thing that's absolutely amazing. The Word of God has been faithfully preserved. We said in our statement that the word of God is God-breathed. That means it stresses that the origin came, is from God. And because it, the scriptures are from God, they are authoritative. They are authoritative. They hold authority in our lives. We said the word of God is without error. No errors in the original manuscripts. We said each word in both Old and New Testaments are inspired by God. And, by the way... <clears throat> God used different writers with their different personalities and different ways of writing. He used that, but he made sure that what was written was his word. And the, the writers themselves are not inspired. The writing is inspired. The word of God is what's inspired. And this is the only message that we have to preach. When scripture speaks, God is speaking because this is the word of God, and the scriptures are inspired by God. And secondly, the scriptures are profitable. They're profitable. It says in verse 16, all scripture is inspired by God and profitable. Now, where it says all scripture, some people want to argue, well, that should be translated every scripture that is inspired. And others say, no, it's the whole of scripture. It's all scripture. You know what? Any way you look at this thing, it comes down to the same thing. All scripture is inspired by God, okay? These silly arguments these people have. The Old Testament is inspired by God. The New Testament is inspired by God. We have the word of God. And it's profitable. The word profitable means useful. The word of God is useful to us. It's beneficial to us. It's helpful to us. Many think that the word of God is just some relic, you know, some antique in the past that people at one time used to use and it's no good for us today. It's not really relevant today. I heard a guy say that his preacher, <clears throat> he doesn't preach all that stuff in the Bible. He preaches all the relevant stuff. What does that mean? The word of God is relevant. I don't have to make it relevant. 
it is relevant already. It is effective in our life. You know what it says? Very interesting verse. First Thessalonians 2.13 says this. For this reason, we also constantly thank God that when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but for what it really is, the word of God, which also performs its work in you who believe. The word of God performs its work in you who believe. That's what it says. The word of God is effective in your life. So it's profitable to us. And it's profitable in four areas. <clears throat> Number one, teaching. Two, reproof. Three, correction. Four, training in righteousness. The word of God is profitable for teaching or doctrine. That is to say, Scripture instructs one by means of its content. We're instructed by the content of Scripture. Romans 15.4 says the things that were written in earlier times in the Old Testament, they're written for our benefit. <clears throat> is it necessary that we have doctrine in church? Is it necessary for us to teach what the Word of God says? Is that really necessary? A lot of people don't like doctrine. They would rather, they would rather hear a guy like Mike Rodriguez play the bass guitar, right? But the Scripture is very important for doctrinal reasons. Doctrinal reason, doctrine is the foundation for the church. It's the foundation for everything. And if we, don't have, if we don't have the teaching of the Word of God, we have nothing to base our life. It's the standard we go by. Look at 2 Timothy chapter 4, verses 1 to 4. 2 Timothy 4, Timothy says, I, Paul says, I solemnly charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is the judge of the living and the dead, and by his appearing in his kingdom. What does it say next? It says, preach the word, right? Be ready in season, out of season, reprove, rebuke, exhort with great patience and instruction, for the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine. <clears throat> but wanting to have their ears tickled, they will accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance to their own desires. And will turn away their ears from the truth and will turn aside to myths. The word of God is, this doctrine is foundational to the church. The scripture provides the comprehensive and complete body of divine truth necessary for life and godliness, Carthage Study Bible says. So foundationally, doctrine is important. Secondly, it's for reproof. Scripture is a rebuke to those who are living, living in opposition to it. It rebukes you, it reproves you uh, for your false beliefs or false ideas false philosophies or thoughts. We come, to, we come to the Bible with all kinds of stuff in our heads. And the Word of God reproves us and rebukes us and says, that's wrong. Here's the truth right here. If you're living in opposition to Scripture, you're going to be rebuked by Scripture. And then thirdly, Scripture's profitable for correction. The word correction means to set right. It's got the idea of restoring, restoring something to its proper position that's, that's fallen down. Uh, it's got a couple of uh, times it's used in literature outside the Bible, and it's described this way. It's the idea of setting a fallen object back in its original position or helping people who have fallen down to get back up on their feet. So it, the scripture corrects us and puts us back, restores us to where we were. Not only does it teach us and rebuke us, it rebukes us, it corrects us as well, helps us to, re to be restored to where we should be. And then fourthly, the scripture is for training in righteousness. <clears throat> the scripture is designed to produce righteous conduct there's a goal there's a goal in scripture scripture is not an end in itself there's a goal it has it wants us to produce righteous conduct in us so we'll know god better it, the, the word had to do it's an it's really an education in righteousness this this phrase it had to do with children when they were trained and educated back in the day uh just like a child is educated and trained and disciplined by parents god wants to train us to live a righteous life and that's the purpose here and so there are four primary areas here that God uses to show that the word is profitable to us. What about the purpose of Scripture? Look at verse, uh, 
Verse 17. So that the man of God may be perfect or may be adequate, equipped for every good work. So that, that's the purpose clause. The man of God may be adequate. Man of God is a primary reference to Timothy as a leader in the church, but it can, it can mean ultimately any believer. We want all believers to be adequate, right? Adequate. They want to, we want them to be capable, able to meet all demands, what it means. The scriptures able, can enable believers to meet the demands that God places on, on them. And then it says that they should be equipped for every good work. There's nothing lacking uh, in the word of God that, can't, that, that, that won't help the believer in his life. The, 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 the total scriptures, totality of scriptures contains all we need to fit us, to make us adequate to do the work of God. We don't need anything else. The scripture in and of itself is sufficient for life and ministry. It's all we need in the word of God. I wanted to, in closing, I wanted to read a quote about this idea of the all include the uh, equipping of, that scripture does for us from Charles Spurgeon. Nobody can say things the way Charles Spurgeon can say them, by the way, who lived back in the 1800s. Listen to this. Charles Spurgeon said this. There is one book which you all have, and that is your Bible. And a minister with his Bible is like David with his sling and stone, fully equipped for the fray. No man can say he has no well to draw from while the scriptures are within reach. In the Bible, we have a perfect library. And he who studies it thoroughly will be a better scholar than if he had devoured the Alexandrian library entire. In other words, the Alexandrian library was a famous library in history in Egypt. He says, if you had that whole library, it doesn't matter. If you have the word of God, you're better off. To understand the Bible should be our ambition. We should be familiar with it. As familiar as the housewife with her needle, the merchant with his ledger, the mariner with, the sh with his ship. We ought to know its general run, the contents of each book, the details of its histories, its doctrines, its precepts, everything about it. Then he, gets, he says this, Beware of the man of one book. He is a terrible antagonist, a man who has his Bible at his fingers' ends and in his heart's core is a champion in our Israel. You cannot compete with him. You may have an armory of weapons, but his scriptural knowledge will overcome you, for it is a sword like that of Goliath, of which David said, There is none like it. The gracious William Romaine, I believe, in the latter part of his life, put away all his books and read nothing at all but his Bible. He was a scholarly man, yet he was monopolized by the one book and was made mighty by it. If we are driven to do the same by necessity, let us recollect that others have done it by choice. <clears throat> let us not bemoan our lot, for scriptures will be sweeter than honey to our taste and will make us wiser than the ancients. Boy, I tell you what. I thought to myself, if I go back in, if I go back in church history and be a member of any con congregation, I go to the 1800s, I think I'd be a member of Charles Spurgeon's congregation. Listen to him preach every week. If I could go back in history, that is. Well, we've seen here that the scriptures are, are important for life and godliness. They're authoritative. They're inspired. We're to live in them. Uh, we're to uh, persist in them. We're to continue in them as Timothy did. And we're to appreciate them knowing what we have in the scriptures, knowing that they're from God, knowing that they can change our lives, knowing that God has given them for us to be trained in righteousness, knowing for the fact that we could be adequate and equipped for every good work. Let's pray. Lord, we do thank you for this time tonight. Thank you for your word. <clears throat> we thank you that um, it's everything we need. It's sufficient uh, for life and godliness. It's authoritative in our lives. We just pray we would never, ever forsake it, that we would 
neglect to be without it, that we would make it our, our, our primary, uh, our priority in life, Lord, that we would make it our priority, we'd live in it, that we would do what it says, not be hearers of the word only, but doers also. And we just pray as we go forward now and go our separate ways that we would glorify you in what we do. And we pray this in Christ's name.